While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. Jefferson Davis was born in 1808 in Kentucky. He served in the United States Army, went to the Senate to represent Mississippi, and was appointed by Franklin Pierce as his Secretary of War. Of course, he also served as President of the Confederacy until he was captured in 1865. He held his last cabinet meeting in Washington, Georgia, and was taken prisoner in Irwinville. Davis's wife, while she was describing the capture to someone, said that she threw a shawl over his head and shoulders, as either last-minute disguise or some protection against the chilly morning air as they tried to leave the area. This led to persistent rumors that Davis had been apprehended trying to escape in women's clothes. He was incarcerated at Fort Monroe on the coast of Virginia, where he spent two years after being indicted for treason. Although Davis and a few others believed that a trial would impede the process of reconciliation between the North and the South, plans were made for a treason trial and a jury was selected. The trial never happened. Eventually, Davis was released on bail and he fled to Canada to join his family in Montreal. In 1868, Andrew Johnson issued an amnesty for those involved in the rebellion and the case against Jefferson Davis was dismissed. He returned to the U.S. and took a series of corporate positions throughout the South and also with some British firms. In 1887, he was nearing 80, and his health was failing. He had traveled throughout the South, speaking of public events commemorating the Confederacy, and had completed writing his memoirs. 1887 was the year he didn't come to Athens. This is Moving Through Georgia Season 2, Episode 2. Actually, there were quite a few years that Jefferson Davis didn't come to Athens, but 1887 was special. Much of my information for this episode has come through a Georgia Historical Quarterly article by friend of the podcast, E. Merton Coulter, published in 1966, but there are a few other sources mixed in. After the war, Davis did occasionally speak out to criticize the North's handling of Reconstruction and praise those soldiers that served in the Confederacy. He urged his listeners to accept the Union. He once stated, United you are now, and if the Union is ever to be broken, let the other side break it. He was somewhat sparing in his comments. He spoke at some large events and corresponded with several publications. In 1889, a magazine called the North American Review put out some claims saying that Davis had mishandled the economy of the Confederacy and had mishandled the war. Davis did take the time to write a letter to defend himself against those claims, and added that he showed a lot of restraint in his public comments, for such controversies give occasion to demagogues for reviving old animosities, which, unless stimulated, will surely and speedily disappear. This was his belief and the belief that a lot of the former Confederate leadership had. The rebellion was over, the Union was restored, and further discussion wasn't to anybody's benefit except those who were trying to stir up the people. 
In 1887, a fair was being planned in Athens that would cater to the residents of 11 counties in northeast Georgia. Fairs at the time weren't the carnivals they are today. This fair included horse and bicycle racing, demonstrations of livestock and farming machinery, art exhibitions, and various spectator sports. Word had reached the planning committee that Davis, despite his age and health, had planned to visit a different fair in Macon that would close about the same time the Northeast Georgia Fair would open. That's the first week in November. And they set out to persuade him to visit their fair. Invitations were written and delivered by a small group to the ex-president's estate in Biloxi, Mississippi. The fair's representatives reminisced about old times and reminded Davis that while in Athens, he and his wife could visit the widow of Huel Cobb, a founder of the Confederacy, and we'll deal with him in another podcast. The visitors were presented with cigars, which they apparently did not smoke, choosing instead to keep them as souvenirs of their visit. Eventually, the committee secured a promise that Davis would attend if his health permitted, news that caused the city of Athens to plan a triumphal welcome involving up to 50,000 visitors to the fair. Recently, President Grover Cleveland had been welcomed to a fair in Atlanta, and the Athenians planned to outdo Cleveland's welcome in every way. There was trouble. Davis kept his appointment to visit a gathering of veterans at a fair in Macon at the end of October, but before leaving Mississippi, he sent a telegram to Athens explaining he would not be able to attend the Northeast Georgia Fair due to ill health. The directors of the fair continued to promote Davis's appearance anyway, and plans for his arrival continued on. Representatives traveled to Macon to persuade Davis to relent, but Davis felt the visit would be useless if he lacked the strength to speak and shake hands with local veterans. Instead, his daughters Winnie and Maggie would visit and be present at the opening of the fair while Davis rested. They arrived to the reception planned for their father, toured the significant sites of Athens, including the college, and attended parties at night. After a few days, they returned to Macon and the Davis family returned home to Biloxi. Davis would die two years later in 1889 and would be interred in Richmond, Virginia, and he never visited Athens. E. Merton Coulter describes the various parties and salutes that Davis received when he went to speak to Confederate veterans. But as I read that and read a description of the fair, I realized how little I knew about the figures that built and oversaw the Confederacy and how they lived out the remainder of their lives after defeat. Robert Toombs, as we've discussed in Season 1, refused to sign the loyalty oath and he considered himself an unrepentant rebel. We'll discuss the pre- and post-war career of Alexander Stevens in a later episode. And now we know how Jefferson Davis fared after the war, but let's take a moment with some other figures from that time. Robert E. Lee was not arrested for his role in the rebellion. He accepted a position as president of Washington College, which is now renamed Washington and Lee University, and that was in 1865. He encouraged students from the North to study in the South and apparently ensured that they were treated well. He was well-liked among the students, and he served there until his death. When he was invited to attend the unveiling of a granite monument at Gettysburg, Lee wrote to a friend, 
I think it wiser, moreover, not to keep open the sores of war, but to follow the examples of those nations who endeavored to obliterate the marks of civil strife and to commit to oblivion the feelings it engendered. In 1869, he met with President Ulysses Grant at the White House for an amicable conversation. Lee died a year later in 1870. He's widely credited for giving up command of the army with dignity and promoting a spirit of healing between the North and the South. One interesting point about Lee. Before the war, Lee lived in the Custis Lee Mansion in Arlington, Virginia. The property had belonged to his wife's family and they were related to George Washington. So the house that Robert E. Lee lived in just before the war was built by a grandson of George Washington. During the war, the land was appropriated by the United States government and Union and Confederate soldiers were buried on the grounds. It, the story is that the Union confiscated the property and wanted to make sure that Lee would never want it back, so they turned it into a cemetery. Lee never visited the property again. In 1874, his son, George Washington Custis Lee, sued the government, claiming that the property had been seized without due process. Through a series of appeals, the case made it all the way to the Supreme Court, and in a 5-4 decision, the court agreed with Custis Lee. He could have retaken custody of the land, but he eventually settled on a sale price of $150,000. The house is now known as Arlington House, and the surrounding grounds, of course, have become Arlington National Cemetery. John Breckinridge had a full political career before the war. He even served as James Buchanan's vice president. He had a military career with the South before he was appointed Secretary of War in 1865. He was the fifth and the last to hold that position. Breckinridge was in Washington, Georgia on May 5, 1865, arriving just after Jefferson Davis officially disbanded the Confederate government. He traveled south with some volunteers to create a diversion for those troops that were hunting Davis. He moved by land and later by boat, using a lifeboat that a Confederate general had appropriated from a federal gunboat. After a few weeks of travel down the coast of Florida, the fugitive band approached a U.S. patrol boat that was manned by Army deserters. He and his people drew their pistols and quickly boarded the vessel, and they loaded the deserters into their old boat, and set off for Cuba in their new vessel. They gathered supplies, bought provisions from a band of renegades, and escaped another patrol boat on the way. The boat hit a storm during the crossing, and its inhabitants faced starvation, but a little over a month after leaving Washington, Georgia, the little group that was just reduced to a few remaining men landed to a hero's welcome in Cuba. One story says that the band played the Star-Spangled Banner and Yankee Doodle, and I'm sure neither were very much appreciated. They were alone now, but they were able to contact some ex-Confederate friends. Breckenridge eventually arranged passage to England and then reunited with his family in Toronto, Canada. After a winter in Canada, which had to be quite a difference from traveling through Florida and Cuba, they took a short tour through Europe and then returned to Canada to live within a stone's throw of the U.S. border. When President Johnson proclaimed a general amnesty for Confederates in December of 1868, Breckinridge crossed into the United States and traveled to Kentucky. 
he resumed the law practice that the rebellion interrupted and was involved in the railroad business. He had no interest in returning to politics, stating, I no more feel the political excitements that marked the scenes of my former years than if I were an extinct volcano. He died in 1875 at the age of 54, having lived a life ranging from Vice President of the United States to a hungry, ragged, ex-Confederate pirate. One interesting note about Breckenridge. In 1859, before the war started, the town of Breckenridge, Colorado was founded, and it was named for a local prospector. In 1860, when Breckenridge was the Vice President of the United States, the spelling of the town was changed to honor the Vice President. When Breckenridge broke with the government and took a position in the Confederacy, the town restored the original spelling. One more interesting note, but before we do, I just want to remind you that Moving Through Georgia is a Georgia history podcast focusing on Northeast Georgia. If you have any questions, comments, or criticisms, please send them to movingthroughgeorgia at gmail.com. I love to hear from you. People didn't fade away after the Civil War. Many, like Davis and Lee, expected to see a reconciled North and South in their lifetime, with the bitterness of the war considered a thing of the past. The 14th Amendment prohibited former Confederates from holding any civil or military office, including national elected office, but Congress could also override that prohibition on a case-by-case basis. It was that provision that delayed Jefferson Davis's trial for treason. His lawyer stated that Davis was already punished under the 14th Amendment and any further prosecution would be double jeopardy. The case was headed for the Supreme Court, but it was made irrelevant by President Johnson's general amnesty in 1868. A law in 1876 restored the full rights as U.S. citizens to almost all remaining Confederates. Davis and some members of the Confederate government were exempted. In 1978, another Georgian, President Jimmy Carter, signed a bill restoring full rights of citizenship to Jefferson Davis. The resolution states, In posthumously restoring the full rights of citizenship to Jefferson Davis, the Congress officially completes the long process of reconciliation that has reunited our people following the tragic conflict between the states. Everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The yellow man left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right left walk on your heel and toe. From an aid that pretty gal to Georgia. That's all. <laughs>